Uh, that was Dr. Upchurch. And many of you guys know Dr. Upchurch. And I remember him. Yeah, yeah Bill's going, I remember him. And you took some classes with him probably. And he had, he had big hair, big glasses, and teeth that were way too big and were always showing. And, and short little guy. And, and I just go, oh, I don't know if I like this guy. But then there's a class that I had that I absolutely really began to enjoy Dr. Upchurch. And he really, he really spelled some things out. And it was dispensationalism. I, I've talked about this, this before. I, I, and I believe probably the rest of you, are dispensationalists. And I, you, you maybe go, I, I don't know if I'm a dispensationalist. Uh, let me explain to you a little bit. The word dispensationalism, and I try to put this in a way that we can understand. It's the way God governs the globe differently at different times. It doesn't mean that God changes. But it means that the way he exercises his sovereignty and authority over his creation is different at different times. I believe if you, I believe probably everybody, every Christian is a dispensationalist. If we weren't, we should be uh, sacrificing lambs at altars all the time. And we don't do that, right? Uh, We're not in the age of the law. We're in the church age, the age of grace. And God clearly marks out what, when he's going to change things. Here on earth, the way he works with people. And I think that's kind of important to us understanding what I mean when I talk about us talking about hope and this prosperity gospel message. Another thing that I believe is it is I believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. I believe that when I pick up the Bible and I read it and it says Jesus Christ died on the cross. And they buried him in the ground, and three days later, he came back to life. I believe that that literally happened. I don't believe in the swoon theory that says that, well, no, he didn't actually die. He just got really close to death, and then he kind of was, I don't believe that. I, I, I believe that when the Bible says that Moses and the children of Israel got to the Red Sea, and it parted, and they walked across on dry ground, I believe that that's what happened. I believe that when the Bible says that there is coming seven years of tribulation on this earth, that that is literally going to happen. And when it says that King Jesus is going to set his foot feet back down on this planet, that that is really going to happen. I believe we find ourselves in the church age. The age of grace. And that's amazing. And I've been doing these word studies. And I try, I actually probably spent a lot of time on these word studies. Because I find them fascinating. And I dive into these words. And I spend some time looking at them and reading about them. And we looked at grace. And when I dove into grace and And I began to study it and look at it and 
shared it with you guys. It brought grace alive to me. Because as I looked in the Old Testament, I, I saw a clear description of grace in the time of the law was spoken of as merited favor. When Esther found grace in the eyes of the king, that was because she was beautiful for him to look at. It wasn't like the grace we find in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. It was a different thing. And as you look and you study that word grace, precious stones can be found to be gracious because of their beauty. In the Old Testament, it's different. You get to the New Testament, and it's the unmerited favor of God. It focuses on the finished work of Christ. Jesus Christ dying on the cross changed everything. Changed grace. And it changes how we can experience grace today. We took a look at the, the word mercy. In the Old Testament, we read about a merciful God who even gave the children of Israel this place, the mercy seat, behind the veil of the temple, the place where atonement is made, on a day of atonement, where they would, they would take the blood behind the veil and offer it as a sacrifice on the, on the, uh, on the mercy seat. In a special ceremony. You get to the New Testament. And we learn that Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. He is the mercy seat. You know, they made a movie a while ago, The Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I'm sure it would be huge news if someone came out and right onto the scene and they, they would bring out the Ark of the Covenant. And they'd be like, oh, here's the... I believe that there's a big... There's a, there's a huge reason that we don't have the Ark of the Covenant around today. We don't need the Ark of the Covenant. We don't need the mercy seat. Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. His blood is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we find mercy through Jesus Christ. And then I dove right into this word hope. And I, I was studying hope. I was looking it up. I was looking at all the different words for, for hope in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. And let's, let me give you kind of a broad definition of hope. To trust, to wait for, to look for, or something that one desires. To expect something in the future. And I've said this so many times. Hope is a, is a word that I want, I want, I desire. I'm trying to help myself use properly. But like most of you, I use it like the world uses it. I hope you have a nice day today. I hope things go well for you. Boy, I hope you won that lottery ticket. I hope the New York Giants beat the New England Patriots again. I hope that the Yankees do well. I hope you do good on your test. But we got to look at hope from a biblical perspective. And when we begin to look at hope from a biblical perspective, we begin to look at things a little bit differently. First of all, I looked at the Hebrew word 
hope. And you can, you can kind of do go through the starting process of me doing this. How many of you guys have a Strong's Concordance? If you ever want to, Strong's Concordance are pretty awesome. Uh, you can look up hope. And if you were to look up hope, you're going to find that in Hebrew, there's two words for hope that you find in the Bible. It takes a little bit of time, but it's kind of an interesting thing. And then you can look up in Greek, there's one word, and it's a different word for hope. And then you can look at the verses that go along with it, and, and which one's which, and, and you can learn a little bit about that word. And if you do, you find something very interesting. When we look at hope in the Old Testament, it's two words. First one is the prominent one. It's kawa. It's to wait patiently, expectantly, to stay, to tarry, or to trust. And the second one, and I've even got the, the Strong's number up there, T-Cloth. A cord of attachment. The thing I long for or that I love. Those are the two words that you find in the Old Testament. And when you begin to, to look at and dive into hope, and you look at the Old Testament, you find that hope in the Old Testament, in the time of the law, had a focus on your earthly life. So as I read from Genesis to Malachi, and I see the word hope, hope had to do with strength for today. Like We sing that song, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. If you could take just that line in that song, the hope in the Old Testament had to do with strength for your daily living. In the Old, Old Testament, it's bright hope for tomorrow. We're going to see how awesome and how amazing that is. In the Old Testament, hope implies trust. You, you look and there's that word, hope. And sometimes as you're reading through the Old Testament, you, you won't see the word hope. You'll see the word trust or wait will be used instead of the word hope, or sometimes they could use the word hope. All the same word, but, it, but it's kind of different before Jesus Christ dies on the cross. I'm so glad that things are different now that Jesus Christ dies on the cross, because Jesus Christ himself said, I've got to go and I've got to die on the cross because when I do, things are going to get better. From the moment he stepped on the scene, that was part of his message. When I die, things are going to get better. And that's true for you today. The first thing, first verse I'd like us to look at is Psalm 33 and verse 8. Psalm 33 and verse 
I remember reading every single one of these verses, and this does not look like the verse that I wanted. What? Verse 18. Yeah, that's the one. Thank you, Matt. It says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy. Let's turn over again and look uh, on to Psalm 14 and verse 22. There's not 20. I don't know what's going on here. There's not 22 verses in, in Psalms 14. I don't know what's going on here. Yes, yes it is. I don't know where I got verse chapter 14. Anyways, hopefully things will get better here. In Psalm 33 and verse 22, it says, Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. When we begin to look at this word hope and the idea that, that it has to do with you trusting God, if you have hope in God, you, you put you put and you place your trust in Him. Now, now, when I say I'm a dispensationalist, I believe God governs the globe differently at different times. I also am a person who thinks that, that one of the biggest things is that people make a mistake and they say, well, I'm a New Testament Christian, and that was in the Old Testament. And they almost take the Old Testament and they take it and they throw it away and they're like, ah, I'm a New Testament Christian, so I don't have to have anything to do with all those. Are you kidding me? We have the whole counsel of God. And, and Jesus Christ is put to the forefront in the Old Testament. They expectantly waited for him. And we learn so many things from the Psalms, from the stories in the Old Testament. And I think we still have to learn, learn something about a from the Old Testament and things that can apply to our life. As a matter of fact, when I begin to think about this, and hope implies and it has the idea of trusting, you got to trust God. And, and if you're going to have uh, uh, hope in the Lord and you're going to trust in Him, you got to think about stories like Gideon. Let's turn our Bibles to Judges chapter 7. Well, well I kind of share a little bit here. In the story of Gideon, the Midianites are causing the Israelites all sorts of problems. Life was terrible. It was awful. They would grow crops and then uh, as soon as it was harvest time, the Midianites would come in and they would plunder their villages and take all of their hard work. How awful that is. And they'd be left with nothing and they'd be hiding it. And life was very, very rough. And it was in times like that, in the Old Testament, you'd say, well, Israel, you have to have hope in the Lord, that he will send you a judge, that he will send you a savior, a deliverer. 
For the children of Israel when they were in Egypt and they were slaves for 400 years, they were hoping that God would send them someone like Moses. That's where their trust was in. That God was going to make their lives better. And in Judges chapter 7 and verse 2, it says, And the hand of Mi- it says, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. If Gideon had to have hope in God, he had to trust that it was God who was going to save him. God was going to deliver him. And he had to trust that the Lord knew what he was doing. So for Gideon, it's, I have hope in the mercy of God. In verse 12, in this same, in Judges chapter 7, it says something that I find kind of interesting. I like to read verses 12 to 14 right now. It says, so the Midianites and Amalekites, all the people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as the locusts. And their camels were without number, as the sand by the seashore in the multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. I I, I put up on the screen something that I learned as I was doing my studies this week that I had never noticed before. And and so, so many people have said, I read the Bible again and again and again. And it seems like something will always pop up that I've never, I, I could have read that 10 times and I never saw this, but then for some reason, God brings it out. And something I never realized, the story of Gideon, you look at here and the Midianites, and, and I, I've even taught on this and I've even said, do you realize that Midian was a relative of Abraham? The Midianites were relatives of the children of Israel. And I said, what had happened to the Midianites to bring them to this place where they had become the the stark enemies of Israel in the book of Judges? And then I look at who they had aligned themselves with. The Amalekites. If you look at the Old Testament, especially in the Torah, and you get to the book of 1 Samuel, the, the baddest of the bad in the land of Canaan, were the Amalekites. Those are the people that God says, wipe them all out. They are wicked. And I sit here and I go, wow. No wonder the Midianites had gotten to the place where they were, where they they are these wicked. They were hanging around with the wrong people. And even, you know, I think about kids that are growing up in church and, and if they're hanging out with the wrong people, they can end up, just like the Midianites, friends with the Amalekites. 
And that's a very, very dangerous place to be. But even these guys realized that even though their army was great, as numerous as the locusts, it says, when Gideon comes with his 300 men, you've all heard this story before, the Midianites will run for their lives. You need to have hope when you are vulnerable. God is faithful. In verse 22 it says, When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fed to Beth Acacia towards Zareah as far as the border of Abel Mohala by Tebeth. And we see Gideon chasing down these two criminals, the Midians, Zeba and Zalmunna. And as they're, go- as they're going, we see that God changes the state of the children of Israel's lives because their hope was in Him. And all through the Old Testament, God is the hope of Israel. And when they rely on him and when they trust him, God pours his blessings out on Israel and Israel flourishes. And the, like I said earlier, you look in the Old Testament and hope for the children of Israel meant that their trust was in God, the place where it should be, and God was going to pour out his blessings. On Israel, that's not guaranteed for you in the church. Remember what I said? I was going to preach my prosperity message. And if you were a member of the children of Israel 4,000 years ago, that message would be just for you. If you were a slave in Egypt, Moses would come and say, put your hope in God. He'll send you a deliverer. And you'll go up into the promised land. And God will give you a, a land flowing with milk and honey. We read those words, don't we? Guess what? That's what the word hope meant for the children of Israel. It's not what it means for the church. You go, oh, man. You read the Old Testament. God says, I'm going to give you homes that you didn't build. I'm going to give you fields that you didn't plant. I'm going to drive your enemies out before you. I will bless you above all the nations of the world if you trust me. You're like, wow. Yeah, uh, okay, God will follow you. You know what? Hope for the church is different, and it, it, it doesn't promise that. But guess what? It's better. It's better. You say, what does that mean? Does that mean that God's going to give us uh, us mansions and Ferraris and he's going to give you trials and he's going to give you victory over temptation and we'll, we'll talk about that as we look at what hope means to the Christian let's look at Psalm 25 right now I'm pretty sure that this is right I can picture the verses in my head, so I'll know in a second if they're there. 
Oh, yeah, I got the right verses. Psalm 25, verses 2 and 3. Let's look at, look at those verses. It says, Oh, my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. And let's read verses 19 and 20 also. It says there, Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. In verses 2 and 3, you'll see two words. Trust. And wait. In verses 19, 20, and 21, you'll see two words. You'll see trust and wait. Those words are, are used as a literary technique by David in this psalm to convey a message. The first word that you see there is, is that you've got to trust in God. And if you trust in God, you are not going to be ashamed. And you've got to wait on God. That word wait, you, you, could, you could really cross it out and put the word hope. I, you don't have to, but you could. Because all the other verses that I've read to you in Psalm 33 you know, and, and other places I'll read, it's the same exact word as is translated in the other place, hope. And so you could, if you wanted to. you got to understand that if, if you see the word trust, you can see a couple of different verses, word, words for trust. And if you see the word hope, it could be the same thing as wait, or sometimes it's translated trust. But it's that idea of hope. And here the words are used in parallel with each other. They convey basically the same message. And that's for the children of Israel. That you have to put your trust in God. Another thing that we see as we read uh, through the Old Testament is that the word hope implies patience. You know, hope implies patience. And that's why we see the word wait there. And as we continue through this study on the word hope, we're going to see that it has to do with it's the thing that we are waiting for. And God is providing. And I hope that, I, I hope, I hope, and I'm using the word correctly, I hope, is that as you get through this study, the thing that you want, that you desire, that you put your trust in, it's not a house, because houses fall down. It's not land, because you can lose land. 
So the thing that you hope for is not a government, because a government can can fall down. The thing that you have hope in is not yourself or your finances. But your hope is built on nothing less than what's the word? Right? Seems like some of those people that were writing those songs knew what they were saying. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I love how in the Old Testament, the children of Israel, they could have hope in you. That you'd deliver them from the arms of the Egyptian captors. That they could have hope in you when they, like Jeremiah, were at the bottom of a jailer's pit, stuck in the miry clay. And they needed someone to give them a cord to get them out of the pit. Lord, they had hope like David, that you would deliver them from the clutches of Saul. But Lord... Hope for us isn't hope that, that, Lord, we have to face this world. That, Lord, you're going to bless us with earthly blessings. But heaven is our hope. Jesus Christ is that thing that we long for. And, Lord, it changes, changes everything when we begin to look at that biblical hope. Help us to see things through the lens of the Holy Spirit who guides us and directs us. Lord, let us worship you this week and live for you and live longing for heaven and serving you here on earth. Bless us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.